Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Just like a popular brand of potato chips, I'd like to think that once you pop, you can't stop. So you could do worse than pop over to your podcast app and click subscribe so you don't have to worry about stopping anymore. On tonight's episode, we'll be speaking about keeping users at the heart of our product development. Not by asking them what they want, but what they need. How to make this a part of your company culture and create a continuous customer feedback loop. We'll also see if my slapdash interview skills can survive an interview with someone who literally wrote the book on it. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Cindy Alvarez, author, speaker, mentor and workshop coach using her psychology degree to dig into people's minds as the Director of Customer Research at GitHub, where she's got a rich pool of 40 million users to fish in, and it's her job to get more than a brief LGTM smiley face in return. Also the author of the 2014 book, Lean Customer Development, where she aims to equip teams with the skills to build products that their customers actually need. Hi Cindy, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Now, I can't imagine that anyone listening to this doesn't know who GitHub are, at least conceptually. But just briefly, and and for the record, in your own words, who are GitHub and what problem do they solve? Um, So GitHub is the world's largest monorepo. We've got code from developers all over the world, people who are aspiring learning to code, as well as people who are senior developers, people all over the world working in massive enterprises, on side projects, on the world's largest open source projects. And one of the fascinating things is that developers have a lot of ways in which they want to see the world better. And so it's such an amazing talent to talk to in terms of research because you're asking questions and you've got people who are actually building and doing and have such strong opinions on how things could be better. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, I mean, a lot of your users are going to be pretty technical, as you said. I mean, probably very many of your users are going to be very technical, developers and engineers. And I think you've just touched on it that that that's, that can be quite an opinionated bunch. But at the same time, not always the, the type of people that necessarily want to have loads of meetings and spend loads of time talking about stuff when, when keeping them away from their actual development. Do you find that that's a concern or, or, or do you find that with the, the user base that you've got, that you've always got a steady stream of people ready to, to contribute? I think a little bit of both. There's always people who want to contribute, but there's also a bias towards doing. And so there's a much higher than average, I'd say, disdain for, say, poorly written surveys or interview questions that don't make any sense. So people are saying like, look, I could just, I could just mock this up. I could just, you know, knock out some code really quickly. Why are you asking this? And so there's a much higher burden of kind of getting to the so what, you know, you ask your questions and you're literally going to hear. So why are you asking this? Why does this matter? <laughs> but it's fantastic because I think product folks in general ought to be ought to have maybe their inner developer asking, so what? Because so many of the questions we ask are one step removed or more from what we really need to learn. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess uh, not just having people do uh, what they say in things like in, in books like The Mum Test and stuff like that, where people just give you the answer that they think that they want you to hear and, and try and get you away from them. So having everything tested, it, it, I guess, makes sense. And also central to the kind of a cliche now, but the old test and learn cycle as well, right? So they're testing you in return. Yeah. In fact, uh, I'm often recommend to people new to interviewing or new to a subject matter that you start with a friendly interview. And for us, that's often a fellow GitHuber or someone at Microsoft. 
is to say like, look, we have some questions. We're not actually sure how good these questions are and how effectively they'll get someone to talk. And so we've done practice interviews. I've still done practice interviews where at the end I was like, that was not great. Uh, but thank you so much for helping me see that these questions weren't great. And if it's someone I know, we can actually workshop. They might be able to say, look, you asked this. I don't actually think that's what you wanted to ask. I think you wanted to ask this other thing here. This just reminds me of things like the West Wing and debate prep and sort of standing and, and pretending to be uh, aggressive opponents and stuff like that. Do, do you ever play that sort of game as well and, and try and get people to really tear you down? We do in practice. You know, I find that most people are actually really great interview participants and are not aggressive. But also, when you talk to folks who have not done interviewing, there's a lot of fear that that will happen. Like, I will talk to an interviewer and what if they're, what if they're aggressive? What if they start getting angry at me? And so practicing how to deal with that in advance creates a lot more of that reassurance so that someone will say, okay, now I know that if someone does this, here's what I can do in response. Yeah, I think that kind of practice is something I always try to do, even even with regards to just presenting to people as well. Just, you know, just go through a number of times. And obviously, it's a really obvious thing to do, but I never used to. And it's been game changing since I did that. So definitely see where that comes from. But you're the director of customer research at GitHub. Uh, you've been there for, for just over a year. And as I mentioned in the intro, obviously, GitHub has rather a large number of users. And you said it's the largest in the world. Do you consider them all customers that you go and speak to? Because there's obviously quite a few free people on there as well. So are you talking to basically just anyone or do you have like a certain set of cohorts that you would go and speak to on a regular basis? Depending on the feature area, we're talking to, I would say everyone, but for any particular feature, there are people for whom that's the problem they really need to solve. For example, there's, you know, there are people who are very concerned about security. And so or various security-related features, we're going to talk to people for whom that's a, a primary concern. We maintain an open-source maintainers community because a lot of times the needs of very large open-source projects are different from what you would have from an in-house team. And then an in-house small startup team is going to work very differently than a giant team that has hundreds of development teams. And so just based on what the question is, that's often kind of the next question is, who do we most need to learn from? And it's often a few different sets and often different people over time. So for a beta release, it might be, these are the people that we think are the best target for an early beta. And these are people who we think will be a fast follower and kind of scheduling, when are we going to talk to people at, at which time? But before you were at GitHub, you were at Microsoft. And obviously, Microsoft acquired GitHub back in 2018. And I'm assuming, therefore, that was effectively an internal transition in between Microsoft and GitHub. Is that fair to say? I actually came to Microsoft from Yammer and the Yammer acquisition. So I had been there and floated around to a couple other teams. And then the team I was in got reorged into GitHub, which is a little bit unusual. But it was already very aligned with the kind of work that I was doing around trying to understand how people are using products, trying to understand how to help teams work together better. But I think it's fair to say, without wishing to stoke too many flames, that there was a bit of trepidation back at the point when Microsoft announced that they were acquiring GitHub. It wasn't necessarily universally universally popular. 
I would say every acquisition is met with, you know, the same, it's actually very predictable, like Microsoft's going to destroy it. This is the beginning <laughs> of the end, you know, and, and I can say having been through one acquisition and having kind of been on the sidelines for, for a couple of others, knowing a lot of friends is that, you know, during the first year, nothing changes. Maybe you get some more money, but otherwise, you know, whenever people are like, oh, Microsoft acquired this company three months ago and they're already ruining it. Like, no, no, no. That's just that company was already ruining itself. And it's not just Microsoft. The same thing if Google or Amazon or if any of the big people acquire a startup, they're not getting their fingers in it for the first three months or the first six months. They basically give you that year of, of, of rope to get used to the idea before they start slowly tightening things up. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very interesting the knowledge of of the notion of what Microsoft was known for and what GitHub was known for. And it felt like such a severe culture clash on its face, except that that's where Microsoft has been heading is towards that more humble sense, that more sense of we don't know everything. You know, we're not the tastemakers. We're more the people who can figure out what your problems are and solve them. Um, and that's a huge difference from 10 years ago. Yeah, it's like everyone's still sitting there thinking that it's Bill Gates with the Windows 95 advert and stuff like that, which uh, is, is what I guess, where a lot of this comes from. But it must also make it kind of tricky if you're going into an organization and you know that you're going to be spending quite a lot of your time interviewing users. Did that factor into your thinking at all? Like, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to go into the lion's den now and, and they're all going to be trying to tear me apart? I think one of the things that I learned from the first acquisition is that Hiding behind the, the big corporate face is the wrong thing. And I think, you know, this is, I always tell, give this as advice because I think people's default is to feel that if you're talking to customers, that you need a sort of armor of credibility. And so that might be the company you work for. It might be your impressive sounding title. And that's actually the reverse. If there's anything that immediately puts up a wall between you and your customer and makes them less likely to talk, it's saying that you're the VP of such and such or that you work at Microsoft. <laughs> and so even though I was incredibly proud of being part of Microsoft, you know, in the time when I was still at Yammer, I always introduced myself as on the research team at Yammer. Now it's the research team at GitHub. And we're very clear talking about the small areas there and even talking about the feature teams that we're on. So I said, even better than saying you're from GitHub is saying that you're on the such and such team within GitHub. Because the smaller you can make yourself, the more it's a conversation between equals. And that's really what you want is that conversation between equals, the kind of honest conversation you might have with a friend where you're over coffee or over a beer and you're complaining about a vendor. That's what you need to learn. So before all of that, you had a few jobs in product management and product design, working for a few companies. So Yodli, Lumia, and then Kissmetrics is where you first had the words customer development in your title. Obviously, Kissmetrics, a very well-known company. But were you doing customer development before you joined Kissmetrics and as kind of a part of your job that, that wasn't the main focus? Or was it that Kissmetrics was actually the first time that you really started doing that in, in earnest? It was definitely doing customer development before I knew what it was called. I think a lot of researchers, especially in smaller companies, are doing customer development. I think in a very large company, the research discipline is often very centered around the user and what the user wants. If you're at a small company, it has to involve the business model and what the needs of the business are as well. And so I love to tell the story actually at Yodli 
uh, we were building financial software. We're building software for banks. And the thing about banks is what was true then and is still true is that they only buy products every, say, 12 to 18 months. So if you were lucky enough to get a meeting with an SVP at a bank, you knew that you had to pitch something they wanted. And if you, if you guessed wrong, you didn't get a chance for another 18 months. And so it was very important to go in anticipating their needs, which of course, you know, you're not getting that. They're giving you maybe an RFP, like an, an enormous Excel document with checkboxes. And that doesn't actually reveal what they think those checkboxes are going to translate into. And so at Yodly, I would use Craigslist back then was, was the tool that made sense. And I would actually say, I'm looking to talk to Citibank customers or Northern Trust customers or whatever the bank was. And I would actually do customer interviews and do surveys on that population so that we could go into the banks and say, look, we've already talked to your customers and here's what they want. Uh, sneaky, but also I imagine very effective because there's nothing like actual actual data and, and effectively focus groups to show people what's going on, right? Right. But and often they were uh, they were actually like, "How'd you get this information?" I'm like, "You t- <laughs> you too could have this if you were willing to go out and humbly start open ended conversations." And I think that's you know the research discipline as well has advanced, but at that time it was very much a you could never go to a customer without having a very fully formed prototype. Not that that ever happens anymore, of course. <laughs> but um, but obviously you did psychology at university, so you've you, you've got a, a bachelor's in psychology, I think. Do you find that your history in psychology and and the degree that you did has has really helped you be an effective interviewer and really helped you with your customer development game? I think being the kind of person who wanted to major in psychology has helped. Uh, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot from my my degree, from my actual coursework that's directly relevant. But taking that mindset of understanding the distinction between what people perceive and what they say and how people may color what they're saying based on the audience and the situation, it brings a humility to the interviewing process where you know, this isn't about me. This isn't about how good I am at interviewing. This is about, this is how humans interact. And we all have biases built in and we all, you know, have a certain amount of conformity and a certain amount of the situation is shaping what I'm saying. And when you know that, you can craft questions to try and get around it. Yeah, I just had this image of you being able to like manipulate people into into giving you the right sort of answers and stuff like that. But it sounds like it wasn't quite like that. Not quite like that. <laughs> I think, but I think the, uh, to that point, everyone is actually able to manipulate people and it's like leading questions it's the wouldn't you like this or don't you think or and it's very natural like as humans we actually really want people to agree with us it's very difficult to set up a scenario that allows someone to disagree and i think that's probably the hardest thing that when i'm talking to folks i'm saying how can you frame this question so that someone has permission to disagree with you yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you talk a lot in the book about that um, and various different techniques that you can use. And, and maybe we'll get to speak about that in a minute. But before that, we, we want to go back in time to roughly 2014. I imagine actually probably a bit before 2014, uh, back when you were working at Yammer. Mm-hmm. A team of 20 people under you, I think, give or take. Give or take, yeah. Going through some organizational change with the Microsoft acquisition. I want to say it's roughly about the time that, that you would have been getting ready to have your child as well. Yep. And you sit there thinking, this is the time. I want to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, what made you think that that was the time to write a book? You know, the truth is that I started writing the book uh, a year and a half earlier. 
So before child, before, uh, actually had pitched the book before acquisition. So didn't know any of this was going to come up. But I think that the interesting thing there is books are the ultimate waterfall product. <laughs> and so what ended up happening was spending a lot of time basically heads down working on something. And I, I wrote a blog post that I really enjoyed. It's like, you know, ways not to write a book. And I feel like, <laughs> you know, I would address a second book very differently because I did effectively just kind of go into hiding for a while and then come up, you know, come up to the surface with it. Well, was it a pretty easy process to, to write a book for you? Did you find it quite easy to, to get the words out and, and to get everything onto, onto the page or, or virtual page? Or did you really have to work at it and set yourself loads of targets and push yourself to get that done? So I've found for myself that the easiest thing to do is to answer people's questions. You know, get on a podcast, give a talk, do some mentoring, go speak to a company. That's cake. And so all of the parts of the book which were the easiest to write were the ones in which someone had asked me a question or come to me with a problem and I had talked them through it. And then it was just a matter of take the things that I said and convert them into written form. But there's a lot more that kind of goes into it, which is what are the questions that people haven't asked, but they're, it's going to come up. And how do you tell people kind of the framing of this is why you should care about this in the first place? Because the people who come to you with questions, they've already demonstrated that intent. They've already run into the problem. They're like, I know I need your help. But for me, it was so important to say, you might not realize that you need this, but you do because this is so universal. And so that for me was the hardest part is trying to figure out to explain to people, if you haven't already come across the fact that you need this, how can I convince you? Right. Yeah. So again, using that psychology, dark powers to uh, to get to the root of the problem. <laughs> We discussed before this call that it that it shouldn't really be that controversial an opinion these days that that people should talk to customers to inform their product development, but it does seem to still be a struggle. Why do you think it's still a struggle? It's hard. I mean, there, every step of customer development is hard. As much as I think it is the thing that people should do, I will be the first to admit that. First of all, you have to think about what is it that you really want to know. Not what's the survey question version, but what do you really want to know? And then you kind of prioritize within that of all the things you could know, what is the single biggest risk? And I think most people don't actually want to think about what the biggest risk is because once you think about it, it feels like you're giving it power. <laughs> and I remember one time talking with someone at a workshop and she was talking about things she wanted to learn and they all felt very ancillary to me. Like, sure, that would be nice to know, but they wouldn't be deal breakers. And I kind of kept going with the, you know, sort of five whys style. And she finally got to, I guess my biggest risk is that I could build this thing for my target customer and they would have the information it gives them and they wouldn't change their behavior at all. And she said it and she's just like, oh, I'd be gutted if that happened. <laughs> and it was like, it was such an awful thought. And I just remember thinking, I bet she put that out of her mind as soon as she left the room. Because it was so overwhelming, like the fact that if I ask certain questions, I might discover that this thing I've been working on all along, no one cares. And that's <laughs> such an awful thought. And that's also why I think customer development is so important early, because it's not your baby yet. You know, when it's at the idea stage, you're kind of willing to let go of it. When you've been working for a long time, it's so hard. Yeah, I think some people come with, with such a strong opinion about what the solution is that it's hard to shake them off it from the start. But um, yeah, I, I agree that 
the whole point of all of this lean stuff is supposed to be that you give up as soon as possible if it's not going to be right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just feels crazy to, and, you know, we've all been there, you know, sitting there for six months building something that is then just turns out it's completely pointless. So it feels like not having those discussions has a cost and putting things into cost should then resonate with even the, the, the most hard-nosed of executives, right? Because they should sit there and understand that if we don't do this, this is the cost. Have you ever worked out a way to go to them in those terms or, or do you not think that that works? Honestly, I wish I could say that I'd been able to lay out a logical cost and have someone at an executive level say, yes, you're right. <laughs> Where it has worked has really purely been someone who has already been burned and doesn't want to do it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. I guess there's at least an implicit cost that they can think of there. So I want to do a couple of quick fire role play scenarios right now, and and uh, you can be the the customer development person, and I can be the CEO that doesn't get it. Excellent. They'll they'll be brief because I still want to talk about some other things as well. But so one of the typical reasons to not do customer development would be, but I am the customer. I was the customer. I know what the customer wants. Why would we need to speak to customers? What's your answer to that? It's true. You are representative of one of our target customers. There are a lot of folks out there that are like you. They're having the same problem. I would reiterate what the problem was and say, and also our market cap for customers who are like you is small. We need to be thinking bigger than that. So if we build something that works for you, we will have a customer base of this size. And I know we want to be greater than that. Seems fair. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Okay, next, next, next person. Our customers don't have time. They're too busy. They, 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 can't, they can't spare the time. How have we tried reaching out to them before? Oh, we didn't. That's the, that's the point, right? You, you get a, the, the, that's an assumption, right? That people just assume that they're too busy. Right. And I, like, I think the, the answers that I might also get is we've tried focus groups. We've tried usability tests. We've tried... and. To those, we'll always kind of say, well, what's the time we're asking people to invest? You know, when people did in-person focus groups, you know, it's a, an hour to drive to the place and find parking and get checked in. And then you spend an hour talking. And then, yes, we hand you a check, but that may not feel like it's worth the effort. And I think particularly for people who are developing products for professionals who might be well compensated, you know, if you're making a lot of money, even a $200 check doesn't feel like it's a huge thanks for the gift voucher sort of thing <laughs> exactly exactly it's like okay fine well i'll cover a round of drinks next time i go out with my friends it's not a big deal and so what you really want to do is say like how have we rewarded people and so if you i've often talked to research participants after an interview who are surprised they're like i i didn't realize this is what a research session was like and i'd ask well what what were you expecting they said well you know, I think of research, I think of those long surveys where they bribe you to fill it out. And like on page 10, you start just checking C, C, C. <laughs> it's like, and the thing is, not only is that long, what is more frustrating, they say, is I'm sure that no one is reading this. <laughs> you know, and so much research is done in this way where you don't actually feel like anything is going to happen as a result of it. You know, if you have ever built products and you see a really beautiful prototype and you're in a usability test, you think, are they really going to fix this before launch? And no, the answer is no, they won't. Final scenario. Our customers are too high value. Sales need to control the conversation or CS. Right. So we've definitely got some folks who have a very strong relationship with our field sales or with our account representatives. And I agree. 
those people, we'd like to maintain that conversation, that relationship. And they are busy. They're unlikely to want another meeting on their calendar. I would also say that within that customer base, there are several hundred or several thousand other people who are using our product who would love to give us feedback. So I agree. I'm happy to cordon off the person who's dealing with our sales. Let's not talk to the VPs. Let's talk to a senior engineer. Let's talk to someone who's a marketing manager. Those folks have more time on their calendar. They're more likely to actually be using the product and they can represent a lot of the problems that people may be having. Actually, I've got one more that actually did come up uh, for me once upon a time is the, the product team don't have the deep domain expertise that would be necessary to talk to this customer. I feel that one right now. Being at GitHub, I, you know, <laughs> I, I write a little bit of code. I'm not an engineer. Um, I haven't, I haven't written code for money in 25 years. And so in many ways, there are questions where I don't know that next right question. And so in that scenario, there's really a split that's worked really well, which is when it comes to people's frustrations and things that aren't working well, you really don't need to get into a technical detail. You need to ask someone what they're doing and listen for the places where their voice gets tense or where they get frustrated. And, you know, you should see some of my notes. Sometimes I will take notes and I'll be writing something and just have question marks of something that I'm like, okay, this is some sort of open source library. I'm just going to Google it later. (laughs) But what I need to know, what's actually important to me is that this thing is causing a huge amount of problem and that this is why. So for for that kind of high-level emotional problem-centric exploration, you don't need deep domain knowledge. For day-to-day, what I'd call descriptive research, there's no reason why the person with the technical knowledge can't do those interviews. And I've worked with very technical PMs. I've worked with engineers where you say, look, you don't need to ask about any of the fluff. I really just need you to watch this person do what they're doing. And when they do something that doesn't make sense to you, ask why. And it's just a very simple training on here are a few ways to ask why without sounding like you're judging them. (laughs) <laughs> or criticizing them because it's very natural. Like just the question why, yeah. unless it's a five-year-old asking a question why feels very accusatory. Like, why are you doing that? It, it implies that you shouldn't be. And so I, I talk a lot about like the notion of verbal padding. I say, if you're going to ask why you need to put some, some padding in there. Like, I was just curious. Could you tell me more about? Yeah. I guarantee you when my five-year-old asked me why it is very accusatory at all times. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing we discussed before this call and, and one thing I'd been mulling over myself was the concept of continuous discovery and kind of doing continuous customer interviews and, and making it really just part of the everyday business. And I know in the book you talked about, for example, making it so that not just say the product team or the customer development team or whatever, that, that everyone starts to build this into their routines. But is that how it works at at GitHub at the moment, for example, do you basically just keep asking all the time or do you very much focus it around specific initiatives that you want to find out about as they come up? There is both. So for exploratory research, for things we're doing one or two quarters out, there will definitely be a concerted effort to do interviews, to discover that problem space. But for things that are going on day to day, that's again where that split happens between the exploratory and the emotional and the descriptive research. For day-to-day, our PMs are very embedded in the communities that they work in. So the person who is the actions product manager is talking to companies using GitHub Actions all the time. 
you know, people who are working on PRs are talking to teams who are using PRs. And so what had tends to happen is that we get a ton of customer initiated feedback. People saying, you should do this. This doesn't work. <laughs> and that's, that's a gift. And it's also a gift that we can't take at face value. And so when you're in those conversations, it's that matter of saying, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Oh, you're right. We don't support that today. If we did, what would it allow you to do? How would you use it? And that you don't have to schedule a separate interview. You don't have to have a separate conversation. You can wend that into the fabric of your current meeting is just to say, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Tell me more. And that's where you really get at that notion between the customer says they want this thing. Do they want this thing or do they want an underlying problem solved? And so often it's the underlying problem, but especially if you're an engineer, if you're a product person, if you're a designer, you are used to solving problems. And so it's just second nature to jump to, and here's how. Yeah. And we just want to let them un unwind that, just peel back that conversation a little. Yeah, I have a bit of a sin in this case that, that has happened to me in the past where we got some feedback from a customer who was saying, yeah, well, we really love your web app, but there's no export function. And, and we've basically got some intern who every month or whatever will go in and effectively just copy pages and pages of data out of the system. Mm-hmm. Can we have a download button? And I said, bah, let's, just make, let's just put a download button in. And we put a download button in and, and that was that. But then thinking back to it afterwards, I was like, but why did I need to download the data? You know, why did I need the data out of the system? What could the system be doing that, that would maybe enable them? You know, where are they putting that? What reports are they making off of it? What, what, what other things could we unlock for them? And it may well have been that, that that download button was actually the smartest solution, but I actually felt kind of guilty afterwards that we didn't at least ask because it felt like there could be another or deeper story there. But, you know. Yeah, and there, there so often is. And people do the things that make sense for them, and they often are a little bit sheepish to admit it when it seems silly. It's like, well, you know, on the reporting front, I say, you know, as a, as a global whole, I say any reporting thing I've ever worked with, if I watch customers use it, they take a screen cap and they put the screen cap in a PowerPoint. And, you know, having done the follow-up and asking why, it's almost always we need to report on these numbers, but we don't actually want our CEO or SVP or whoever to be able to dig with the numbers themselves because that's going to create a ton more work. So we just want this version. And it like it cracks me up, but it's like on the face value, of course, have export, have, you know, CSV export, have, you know, table builders. But what this person actually needs at the end of the day is maybe just a screenshot. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that, that was definitely one of, one of the more minor things, but still made me think about that as, as I was preparing for this call. But what other things do you think that you need to do within an organization to build that culture of that continuous discovery? Because obviously, day to day, your sales team, your CS team, your sales consultants, everyone else there, they're doing what they need to do to get their stuff done, which is completely fair because that's their job and that's probably what they've got KPIs and potentially even uh, remuneration based off of. But what are some concrete steps that you can take with some of these teams to, to help with the more kind of BAU customer development and discovery? Yeah, I think one of the things is that if you can get the executive buy-in to do this, it's incredibly valuable to have someone at the top pointing out when someone did this and praising it. You know, as an, and as, a, as an aside in an all hands, in a review, just kind of pointing out, oh, by the way, you know, Cindy asked this question, we wouldn't have otherwise known the answer. So that was really interesting. It doesn't have to be a lot, doesn't have to be a huge shout out, but just an acknowledgement. 
also acknowledgements when those things discover things that may be unpopular. So we thought we were going to build this. We actually talked to a bunch of customers. We realized that it's not going to make sense for us to do this. We're cutting scope. And we're glad that we didn't spend six months building it. You can't always get that. So the next best thing is really just peer modeling. And I would say that almost all organizations have some built-in structures for this. That You have design reviews, you have daily stand-ups, you have retrospectives. And making it part of the fabric of those meetings, that there's always someone who asks the question of, what was the problem we were trying to solve? Did we actually solve it? In what ways does this map to the way customers are already behaving? And it doesn't have to be the same person in every meeting. In fact, it's much more efficient if it's not. But, you know, our tendency is to kind of copy paste from templates for meetings like this anyways. And so if you can get one meeting agenda template where someone asks that question, you're more likely to have it in lots of places. I was talking to a very interesting startup founder recently who is trying to pull together an idea around continuous discovery, but more tech enabled. So building a solution potentially that would start pulling together CRM data, usage data from the applications and other other data points and kind of pull them into one big hub and effectively start suggesting who you could talk to about what and when you could talk to them about that. Do you think that's the kind of enabler that would be needed for this sort of thing? Or do you think that it's fundamentally down to more business culture and you know good old-fashioned people skills and general customer management? I mean, where where would you go on that continuum? I think the more important piece is the culture of the culture of humility, of you of being willing to learn and willing to ask questions. I think the more you can reduce friction, the more simple you can make that. I would argue that while recruiting for customers is incredibly time consuming and painful, most companies do have an incoming stream of feedback in some way or shape already. You have field sales, you have customer support, you have a feedback widget, you've got some folks who are available and they may not be the most representative, but they're a perfectly good start. And so just responding to those folks with a thanks acknowledgement, can I ask you a question? That's, you know, you don't need a fancy tool for that. But if you don't have the culture where uncovering answers is going to be seen as a positive, it's never going to take over. I'll tell them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love something that made it easier to just have people that you could respond to. But I think that's also one of those things where there's a workaround of, say, Twitter. Right. The people I know who want ready real time feedback, that's where they're going. And it may not be very rigorous. And also, in some cases, you don't need a rigorous, like scoped customer. It could just be, let's make sure that five humans who are not me don't think this is wild. (laughs) Right. And all you need is like five breathing humans that are not you to say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Or like, no, that's ridiculous. And often that's. You know, customer development is about de-risking and you can thoroughly de-risk, but it's also like if you're getting ready to go out for the day, you know, you might look out the window to see if you need to bring an umbrella, right? And that's not perfect information. It doesn't tell you about the forecast an hour from now, but doing no customer development, doing none of that finger to the wind is like refusing to check the weather and (laughs) you'll get caught in a downpour. So the book's a few years old now. I'm assuming your thoughts have developed and understanding of some techniques and stuff like that. Any chance of a a sequel? Probably not along those direct lines. I think the joy of writing a book about humans 
is that humans don't really change that much. And so I, I have been delighted. You know, I, I will say as an author, you worry that you spent all this time in a book and you're going to go back to it a few years later and say, ah, none of this makes sense anymore. Um, and I am pleasantly surprised that, that I, you know, all of this is pretty much the same because humans haven't changed since 2014. I am working towards a second book, which is taking some of those tactics and bringing them in-house, bringing them internally. Because one of the things I find is that companies' greatest strengths are how well their teams work together. And yet internal teams are not very good at customer developing themselves. I've talked to plenty of folks where, you know, the first take will be, oh, I love my team. We work really well together. And if you dig a little bit, there's always a, we do this thing that I hate, but I'm sure it doesn't bother anyone else. <laughs> And then you talk to everyone, you realize everyone on the team hates the way this meeting is run, and none of you have spoken up or tried to change it. And just how to unlock that capacity to identify the things that aren't working and build better habits as a team. I think there's a ton written about individual habit building, and there's a ton of like Harvard Business Review articles talking about corporate change. And really, I think of your team of eight people or, you know, your boss's boss's team of 20 to 40 people. There's so much good that can happen within that team where you all know each other's names and have a certain level of trust. I want to make that easier for teams to figure out how to get better. And it will honestly, we'll use a lot of the same questions from the first book. But there's there's also some subtle differences to how you ask these questions when you're going to see that person at lunch and the next day and the next day and the next day. <laughs> You can't duck them. Well, I guess you can at the moment, but when we all go back to the office, you <laughs> right. can duck them. So speaking of people not changing, you've made an open offer on your LinkedIn profile of speaking at any events promoting women or people of color in tech. Obviously, it's a recurring theme that, you know, whilst it's good that at least people are talking about it these days, that there's still quite a lot to do. Now, you've been working for some big companies and, and around Silicon Valley for a while now. How has your experience been kind of coming up through the business with regards to being a woman in tech? Sure. So I think a thing that women and people of color will tell you is that there is no company that is an angel, but it's all about the teams. And so within even the most rotten teams or even within the most rotten companies, there can be pockets of safety and excellence. And even within companies that have an excellent reputation, there can be very toxic teams. And so I think that a lot of things have to do with how a manager models their behavior. And so when you can see that the manager directly above you and the manager directly above that person are speaking and acting in a certain way that's consistent with being inclusive, then you see a lot of inclusivity. And I think a lot of times there's this kind of assumption that, oh, this is, you know, this team is all white men. You know, they're all the same age. They're all from the same place. <laughs> it's not going to be, it's not going to be a friendly culture. But if there's been this modeled behavior of how do we think outside ourselves? How do we consider when we might not be making others feel welcome? How do we seek alternate viewpoints? That might be a great team. So I think there's a lot of when you go into a place, I've given this guidance to a lot of my mentees. I say, it may feel a little bit arrogant, but I've found it's really important to talk very clearly about the value you see yourself bringing and the kinds of cultures that you've thrived in and the kinds of practices that you've seen in the past that you'd love to bring to this company. Because I say, you know, one of three things will happen. 
either your future manager will be like, awesome, great. I, I'm so in agreement. I'm looking forward to having you here. Or they'll say, huh, I, I, that's not the way I saw it. But now that you mention it, I can see some truth in what you're saying. And let's talk more about this. Or the third is that they say, no, that's terrible. You should just be grateful we offered you a job. <laughs> and wouldn't you be, wouldn't you rather discover that up front and quietly decline than discover it six months in? So I think there's a phrase I use a lot, which is giving people something to react to. And I think when you are not the default, when everyone doesn't look like you, it's very important to give that something to react to quickly so that people can see where you are and so that you can also gauge what you're working with. And there have definitely been times in my career and in many other women I know's careers where we've been in a situation that's not great. It's tenable, but for whatever reason, you know, you're moving, you're pregnant, you're, you know, you're having some personal issues, maybe you're in school. It's just not a good time to move careers. And so in that time, you kind of have to think about, well, what is the box that I can operate within for now and maintain my sanity so that when it is time to leap, I can leap, you know, with force and be happy. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of, you know, you will never be the default if you're not. And so it's important to find a place where whatever odd shaped person you are, it fits the, the odd shaped hole they may have. Do you think it's getting any better these days or, or is it much the same as, as it has been for the last 10, 15 years? I think what's the quote? The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. <laughs> I think that it's tremendously better in some places. And I think in others, it's maybe even worse as some people's instinctive reaction is to be defensive and to kind of kick back further. I do think there have been enough cases of just acknowledging that things were were not well, that things have gotten better. I think there are certain elements that have gotten a lot better. One like very specific thing I've seen is the rise in men taking parental leave. And uh, I'm in the US, so parental leave here is actually abysmal. But among, among well-paid uh, tech companies who want to retain their employees, you know, there have been increasingly high amounts offered. And I've seen that's something where peer pressure really works in a great positive way. Whereas if the male manager takes time off when, when his partner has kids, then you see all the other men taking time off. And that really helps everyone realize, wait, the world didn't end when I was out for two months, <laughs> just like the world's not going to end when this woman is out for two months. So why are we making a big deal about this? Yeah, that's fair enough. And I think there's just this hope that, as you say, as, as people start to dip their toe in the water and and try and operate in a, in a more inclusive way that, that that can just be the kind of the small pebbles dropping down that become a, a landslide or something so fingers crossed yeah indeed and i just think one of the things is there really is that ripple effect because there's plenty of research showing that a person who has a disability is a woman is a person of color when they're advocating for that same group it can be seen as self-serving and they can actually kind of get retribution from that. But as you get this ripple effect, what makes me hopeful is when I have seen non-disabled people saying, wait, how is this going to work for screen readers? Or you see, you know, the white guy saying like, wait, we haven't talked to any black female users. How are we going to represent that population? Because then you see that like, well, they're clearly not advocating for selfish reasons. 
So maybe it's just the right thing to do. And so whenever I, I hear people say, oh, I don't know what I can do, it's like, speak up for someone who's not you. Yeah, I think that's probably good advice for anyone. But I think that there's always this kind of accusation that a certain type of person will will throw out, like, that's just identity politics, which I guess pretty much touches on exactly what you've just said. So I think, yeah, just trying to trying to make it just a thing that everyone talks about is is where we should be where we should be going. So definitely hoping to help with that as well. So where can people get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about anything that we've spoken about on this podcast? These days, I'm most available on Twitter. I'm at Cindy Alvarez. I love questions. I also am on LinkedIn. You can send me questions there as well. I think it's a a thing that I didn't realize until I had written a book is that I think there's a perception that authors don't want to hear from people, that it'll be a bother. <laughs> and I can tell you nothing is farther from the truth. It is a delight whenever people just say hi or ask a question. It's like, you know, I may not be able to do a, a long extended answer, but it's just, it's such a pleasure to know that something I've written has helped someone. So please be in touch. Well, hopefully you won't get too many all at once, but but we'll see. I'll try and space them out. So that's been a fantastic chat and obviously really interesting to hear some of your opinions and, and some of the things you're working on. Obviously wish you all the best with GitHub and talking to the other 39 million or so users that you haven't talked to yet. Hopefully we can stay in touch, but uh, for now, thanks very much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, the pleasure was all mine. If you found this interview interesting, there are loads more on onenightinproduct.com, that's night with a K, or your favorite podcast app. I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends, and make sure they get the benefit too. And of course, if you feel like leaving a review or a rating, then that would be wonderful too. I'll be back soon with more inspiring guests, but for now, thank you and good night. <laughs>